This morning, church, I would encourage you to grab your Bibles and let's open up to the beautiful book of Ecclesiastes. Find ourselves in chapter 2 this morning. I've got to tell you, the more I'm studying and preparing for these messages, the more and more I am loving this book. And so up to this point, we have discovered uh, that the writer of this book, who refers to himself as the preacher, or Koheleth in the Hebrew, uh, so the preacher, up to this point, he's telling us how he goes about uh, a long and difficult journey in order to try to find fulfillment or to discover the purpose of life. And so the preacher was a man of great wealth, great skill and great knowledge and he applied all of his wealth skill and knowledge all of his energy all of his efforts into his mission to try to uncover the meaning and the significance of life and when he failed to find the answer that he was looking for he didn't give up he just kept pressing harder and looking further So at first, the preacher thought that it was the pursuit of wisdom that would give him all the answers. And that that pursuit is described in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Ultimately, what he discovered is that there are so many crooked things in life that cannot be straightened or things that simply don't add up. And so his attempt to find fulfillment and Meaning and wisdom ultimately ended in failure. In other words, information had failed to bring about transformation in his life. And so he pressed on. He now turns to morality in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He thinks that perhaps knowing the difference between right and wrong would give him a a greater sense of purpose. Uh, But... The reality was that that journey only added to his frustration because he says at the end of it, his conclusion was that in much wisdom, there is much grief. So he didn't find his answers in the pursuit of wisdom. He didn't find his answers when he turned to morality. And so next, uh, the preacher turns to the pursuit of pleasure. That's what we uh, uncovered last week in chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. So if wisdom ended in sorrow, maybe self-indulgence would lead to happiness. So the preacher builds magnificent buildings. He creates beautiful gardens. He took delight in the luxuries of wine, women, and song. Never abstaining from pleasure. Never restraining his appetites. Never limiting his desires. And yet, even in the pursuit of the greatest pleasures in life, he failed to find anything that fully satisfied his soul. So it's as he said it once, as as though he has said it a thousand times, it was all vanity, striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And still, the preacher's continues his search. He refuses 
to give up until he discovers the answer to his question. So uh, with the goal of understanding, the preacher starts the search all over again. Our text this morning begins in chapter 2, verse number 12. There he says, So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? Now, if these words sound familiar, it's because he's already said almost the exact same thing in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse number 13, he says almost the exact same thing when he says that he set his mind or applied his heart uh, to seek and to explore by wisdom. And again, in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 17, uh, it says when he set his mind uh, to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And so the preacher has returned to look again at something that he had already considered. I mean, after all, this is often what we do when something is missing. When we go in search of something that, that we can't seem to find. If you're like me, you can misplace your coffee mug, uh, your glasses, uh, your phone. You can do that all the time. And so uh, one of the things that's a, a running joke around the church is Wayneette has job security because she's always able to find my coffee mugs where I leave them behind. And I just leave them all over the place. And so what happens when you, when you lose something? You, you go and you search at the most obvious place where that item it's supposed to be, right? And then when you go and you search there, you don't find it, then you begin to widen the search. And as you widen the search and you begin to look for that missing item and you can't find it, at some point what inevitably happens is, guess what? You go back to the beginning. You go back to the most obvious place. And there you look in greater detail, uh, longer, trying to return or trying to find a thing that you can't seem to remember where you placed it. And that's what the preacher is doing in his pursuit of understanding. He started with wisdom because that seemed to be the most obvious place to look. But when he wasn't satisfied with his answer, he began to widen his search. After widening that search and still not feeling satisfied in his pursuit or in his answers, then he goes back to the beginning. And so that's the way we operate. When something is missing, we go back to the place where it ought to be, even if we've already looked there before. And so, here, the preacher has returned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now, madness and folly, they go together. They're not two separate things. They are a combined thing. And so the preacher's not describing three categories, but two. Either wisdom, or mad folly, or foolishness. And so on the one hand, there's wisdom. On the other hand, there's madness and folly. And so after his pursuit of pleasure... After that failed to answer his deepest questions, he returns to consider the difference between wisdom and mad folly. He wanted to compare the two. And perhaps studying the difference between the right way and the wrong way to live 
Perhaps that would give him a better understanding to the purpose and the meaning of life. And so, before we look at what he discovers, let me at least attempt to try to bring a little bit of clarity to the second part of verse number 12, because that part can be a bit confusing. Look at that second part of verse 12. It says, For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? There's multiple takeaways that people have, have come up with from this verse. And I would say that this verse is one of those verses that provide us a great example on why it's important for us to read from several uh, trusted translations of the Bible. Because often when you come across something that seems a little bit confusing, if you'll turn to another trusted translation, it could perhaps bring a little bit of insight and clarity. And so I read and preach from the New American Standard. And it says, For what will the man do? Uh, who will come after the king except what has already been done? Not fully sure exactly what that means. If I begin uh, to consider some other trusted translations, notice what I discover. In the ESV, it says, For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then the New International Version says it like this, What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? And then one more in the New King James Version, it, it renders it like this, For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. I think it's noteworthy at this point to point out that after chapter 2, Uh, the preacher makes no further observations from the standpoint of one who reigns. Rather, moving forward from chapter 3 and beyond, his observations come from the standpoint of someone who is knowledgeable or who is an interested bystander. And so I believe that the question that's being asked in verse number 12 assumes that the preacher's successor has already been identified and already in power and in place. By the way, what's happening here is, uh, from the perspective of Solomon, is how we're supposed to understand this text. And, And so as the wisest and wealthiest of kings... Solomon was in a unique position to discover the answer to the question of the significance and the meaning of life. If he can't find or understand life's significance and meaning, then who can? What hope is there for anyone else to discover the answers to this question if the wisest of kings was unable to ascertain the appropriate answer? And so as he begins to compare wisdom and mad folly, he offers us a a very brief glimmer of hope. Notice what he says in verse number 13. He says, and I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. And so the fact that the the preacher is considering wisdom and mad folly does not 
imply that he doubts the superiority of one versus the other. No, in fact, he clearly identifies and recognizes the benefit of wisdom. The benefit of wisdom over foolishness is as obvious as the benefit of having light versus being in the dark. Not only that, he says the, ob- the observation is so obvious of the advantage of wisdom over foolishness. It is as obvious as having the ability to see versus being blind. He says in verse number 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So the value of wisdom is not in that it gives light, but rather the value is that it enables us to see. And so to say that the wise person had eyes in his head means that that person can actually see what they're doing. They can see and understand where they're going. They have a useful perception of life. In contrast, the fool, uh, the fool does not have eyes to see. But that, the fool walks in darkness. And this darkness isn't just around him, but it's inside him because they lack the ability to see. And so the value of wisdom over mad folly is so evident that there need be no further explanation or demonstration. And so, so far, so good. Like, all right, good job, preacher. Like, that's a, that's a powerful and important observation. But then, he offers a troubling thought. He says that the value of wisdom over foolishness is ultimately limited. In verse number 14, it says that the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I know that one fate befalls them both. That one fate is death. Death is the great equalizer. Mortality is the most serious uh, it's the most serious issue facing all of our lives. And so without a doubt, it's much better to be wise than it is to be a fool. Solomon himself wrote in Proverbs chapter 10, verse number 1, and he says, A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. So it is obvious the benefit of wisdom over foolishness. And yet, the reality is, in the end, we all die. The wise will die, and the fool will die. And so this reality is what the preacher finds himself struggling to reconcile. And so he begins to wrestle with the purpose of wisdom. I mean, once you're dead, what good is your wisdom? What good is your wealth? What good is your advantage? 
Whether you are wise or a fool, death is the great equalizer. And so the psalmist declares in Psalm 49, verse number 10, it says, For he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. So what we discover is that death is no respecter of wealth. Death is no respecter of accomplishments. Death is no respecter of wisdom. Death is no respecter of person. And so when confronted with his own mortality, uh, the preacher is wrestling with this. And now he begins to, to talk to himself. In the privacy of the innermost of his soul, the preacher proclaims in verse number 15, he says, Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity. So since death is the end result of both the wise and the fool, the preacher questions whether his pursuit of wisdom is even worth the effort. In fact, in verse number 16, he reaffirms his previous observation from chapter 1. If you just look in chapter 1, in verse number 11, uh, there he says, "...there is no remembrance of earlier things." and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Then in verse number 16 of chapter 2, in the same tone, in the similar language, he says, For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool." Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. And so as we read this, I think that we can begin to sense how his own mortality was weighing quite heavily upon him. And this leads to an emotional declaration that in the end he he declares that he hates life. Look at verse 17. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. His unsuccessful attempts at finding meaning and fulfillment in the pursuit of things under the sun. Physical, personal, fleshly desires, his, his frustration and lacking the fulfillment of chasing after these things, he began to get so frustrated that he began to view life as repugnant and distasteful. If, as he concludes, it makes no difference how one lives their lives and if there's nothing ultimately worthwhile for a person to do or to accomplish that will have everlasting value or meaning, 
then all of life and all of its accomplishments are meaningless. They're, they're like wasted energy, wasted efforts in chasing after something that can never be caught. It is the chasing after the wind. And it is one thing to be disappointed with life and with all of its frustrations, but hating life is on a whole different level. The preacher seems to be rapidly descending into despair. It's not just his life that he hates. No, he hates the concept of life altogether. The whole concept of of life and living is meaningless and of no value. That's his testimony. That's his experience. That, That is only true if life is lived in pursuit of things under the sun. Apart from God. That's the significance of understanding. That's in seeing the beauty of why we have the book of Ecclesiastes given unto us. Here we have the most beautiful and accurate depiction of what life is like apart from God. So we got to remember, we're still looking at, at the things of this world from a limited human perspective. And it is from that perspective that life appears pointless. It is from that perspective that leads people into a place of hopelessness and despair. So the only way out of the emptiness of this life, the only way out of the frustration and despair that comes in pursuing things under the sun is for us to find the wisdom that comes from above the sun. And so providentially, graciously, clearly, the Bible shows us where to find that life-giving wisdom. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4 through says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Not the things that are under the sun. Set your minds on things above the sun. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So, rather than looking at the things of this world under the sun, the Apostle Paul chimes in and tells us that we need to set our focus so much higher. The the pursuit of earthly treasures will only bring about emptiness and despair. But the pursuit of heavenly treasures, uh, that will bring about Joy, peace, and fulfillment in our lives. So we're to set our minds not on the things of this world. Man, that is, that is aiming way too low. No, we're to set our minds on the throne of God. We're, we're to set our mind in the heavens. We're to set our minds where our Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
and for those who set their minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth, those are the ones that will understand true wisdom. Those are the ones that will understand fulfillment, peace, and contentment in this life. True satisfaction and fulfillment is only found in a relationship with God through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we wrap it up for today, some some questions for you to consider. Questions like, are you afraid of death? Do you hate life? Do you worry that one day you'll be forgotten? Are you discouraged by the vanity of your existence? Do you feel like you've been striving and chasing after the wind? If that's the case, take your focus off of yourself. Take your focus off of the things of this world and put your focus, put your attention, set your mind on the throne of God. Which means ultimately submit and surrender your life unto the Lord of Lords. And know that if you do, then He will raise you up from the dead. He will give you a mission to accomplish in this lifetime. He will equip you to fulfill your calling. He will guide you in a life of meaning, in a life of purpose. If you submit and surrender your life unto Him, oh, may you know that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will never neglect you. Even when you are faithless, He will always be faithful. Which means that He will strengthen you when you are tired. Feeling discouraged? He'll pick you up. Feeling drained? He will energize you. Feeling weary? Oh, He will nourish you. Feeling just worn out? Then He will restore you. And when you stumble, when you sin, and when you confess, and when you repent, then He will always forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And when the time has come for our lives to to end, then He will be there to welcome us home into eternal rest in His glory and in His presence. That's the only way that we'll be at peace in this world. That's the only way that we'll find fulfillment and satisfaction is to stop living for us Stop living for ourselves. Stop living for the temporary and submit and surrender our lives unto Him and to live for the glory of God and for the things that are eternal. So may God instill that desire within each and every 
one of us. And if you're any of those negative things, weary, worn out, hating life, afraid of death, may you turn unto Him today. Better yet, turn unto Him right now. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your love, for Your grace. Father, thank You for salvation. God, help us to live a life of complete obedience to Your will and to Your Word. God, help us to take our eyes off of the things of this world. God, help us to stop chasing after the wind. And God, may we pursue You with all that we have and all that we are. Father, in this moment of of response, I pray that You are glorified with decisions that ought to be made. God, help us to to walk out of this place today in a proper relationship with you and with one another. Be with us during this time. In Christ's name I pray.